Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I am a host for the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Uh, Today, I'm going to be talking with Dr. David Fedman about his book, Seeds of Control, Japan's Empire of Forestry in Colonial Korea, which is out from the University of Washington Press in 2020. So Seeds of Control is a book that's somewhat hard to categorize uh, in a very good way. Uh, In sort of put simply, uh, it is a broad but sharp look at the history of Japanese forest management in the Korean Peninsula uh, from 1910 to 1945. Um, And in this sense, Fedman's book is an environmental history to be sure, uh, but also a material history of empire, science, and industry. It's a history of Japan and Korea, but also of transnational networks of knowledge and power. Uh, In other words, Seeds of Control is positioned at the intersection of a number of disciplines, uh, environmental, imperial, material histories, um, but it's also contributing to uh, the history of science and other fields as well. Fedman problematizes the ideologies and practices of forest conservation and regeneration, uh, so-called greenification or ryokka in Japanese, within the sort of context of the asymmetric politics of colonial rule. In part one, uh, he sets the stage with an overview of the institutional transformations of Japanese forestry across the Tokugawa Meiji Divide, and also the ways that Japanese stories about the land were mobilized in service of settler colonialism. Then in part two, uh, part two begins with the reform of land rights under imperial rule, uh, then goes on to delineate the histories of the forest experiment stations, uh, the timber industry, especially in the Yalu River Basin, and then the state-led project of civic forestry and the place of forest owners associations. Finally, in part three, Fedman is looking at uh, wartime, 1937 to 1945, uh, starting with the uses of so-called forest love thought or Aydin Shisou as an ideological lubricant for mobilization. And finally, the spectacular uh, denuding and exploitation of the Korean Peninsula's forests uh, in support of the war effort. Uh, Because of this transdisciplinarity, the book will appeal to a wide range of academic audiences. So Dr. Fedman, thank you uh, for joining us today on the podcast uh, and welcome. Um, I wanted to start off with our traditional question here uh, on the New Books Network, which is uh, how asking a little bit about how you became interested in this project. Uh, Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me and uh, please call me David. The project really kind of grew out of the opportunity I had in uh, right out of my undergrad uh, to go to Hokkaido, uh, to live in Hokkaido, uh, and spend a year or so researching the history of mountaineering in Japan. Um, This was on a a Fulbright Fellowship. Uh, And it was over the course of that year that I... Well, I got to spend a lot of time in the mountains of Japan and in the forests of Japan, uh, and I encountered sort of a relentless stream of commentary about uh, Japan's uh, kind of national culture of forests and forestry, the innate love that the Japanese people have 
uh, of their their woodlands and the traditions of woodland stewardship and protection. Uh, this was fascinating to me, but it also struck me as quite problematic and at odds with uh, the ways uh, in which Japanese communities were using their forests and also my understanding of uh, Japan's history of colonialism abroad. Um, and so for me, that, that sort of planted the, the seeds for some of the research questions um, that, that I explore in the book. Uh, and it was also around this time that I opened Conrad Tottman's The Green Archipelago for the first time. Uh, this is a groundbreaking work of environmental history um, that, that really probes and maps out Japan's long uh, history of uh, forest management and forest regeneration. Uh, it revealed a uh, reveals a rich kind of um, history of silviculture uh, and forest politics that had run through the full sweep of Japan's pre-industrial, pre-modern history, um, and w- was just deeply fascinating to me. But also struck me as um, insufficient in explaining kind of the evolution of. Uh, Japan into a colonial empire. Uh, it, it, it hewed quite tightly to a national framework, looking uh, solely at the islands of Japan and didn't say much at all about um, Japan's contro- expansion into and control of woodlands across the Pacific Rim. Uh, and so for me, uh, I mean, I can remember sitting in my um bedroom in Hokkaido, snowed in, uh, a bear in hibernation, if you will, uh, plowing through Tottman's work um, and really thinking about how I might take these ideas uh, and apply them to landscapes beyond the Japanese archipelago. Uh, And then when uh, fast forward two years, I entered graduate school um, and began to think about uh, the case of Korea in particular. I'd I'd spent some time backpacking in South Korea and um, also encountered plenty of uh, stories, national mythologies of a distinctive relationship between the Korean people and their forests. Uh, That's the the tension between those stories and ideologies of nature uh, and and the the ones I encountered back in Japan was interesting to me, but also the stories that the Korean people told about their national experience of colonial occupation under Japan. prevailing narratives of uh, ruthless extraction on the hands of the Japanese that um, were um, definitely ran against the grain of, of uh, this kind of uh, innate reverence that the Japanese people had for, for woodlands that, that uh, I had uh, heard time and time again back in Japan. So um, for me, it was kind of, uh, it, it didn't take much of a, a leap to connect the dots between Japan's uh, forest history and Korea's forest history, and the natural way to do that was to look uh, look at the colonial period and and begin to kind of puzzle through how the green archipelago uh, transformed and evolved into an empire of, of forestry um, uh, across the twentieth century. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, you know, having spent uh, I guess roughly eight years in uh, northern Japan in Tohoku myself, uh, I, I also encountered. Uh, a great deal of that uh, discourse about J- Japanese forestry. And it was also 
I guess in a way it actually, you know, reflecting on it, this is one of the things that that's always fascinating when you read other people's work and you sort of realize that there were all these things that you never explored in your own that were sort of, you know, right there waiting to be uh, uh, picked at. But um, it was it was in my own work as well, because I was looking at, um, you know, discourses of tohoku-ness, you know, of, of what tohoku meant uh, and the sort of the culture of the forests and Jomon and all that sort of thing were a big part of that. So this is, that's really enlightening for me, um, as was uh, the book as a whole, um, which I have to say, I mean, I think, you know, as, as somebody who's not uh, an environmental historian, um, I, I was a little skeptical of whether I would, you know, really be drawn in by a, a book of a book on forestry, but I certainly was. Uh, and so I'd like to jump into the book itself. Um, I want to start off with the introduction just to, to give some uh, basic background for, for our audience before we get into the chapters. Um, so it seems to me that one of the, uh, maybe the sort of central contention of your book is uh, that, and I'm just quoting you here, um, forestry in general and silviculture in particular functioned as a vital dimension of state power in colonial Korea. Now, that's in addition to some of the things you've already talked about. But um, you also point out that forestry has been largely ignored in Anglophone scholarship on Japanese colonialism in Korea. Um, why, do you, why is that? Why has this sort of been ignored up to now? Um, a number of reasons. Uh, I, I, I would say first and, and foremost is a uh, pervasive urban bias that characterizes uh, English language scholarship on colonial Korea in general. Um, uh, and I think part of this is rooted in the nature of the sources that scholars across disciplines have turned to to uh, examine the colonial period. Uh, they tell stories about the transformation of cities. I mean, cities are these vibrant uh, spaces. It's where the movers and shakers of politics and commerce are, are by and large, located, and and so it's it's uh, quite understandable that uh, scholars would uh, be drawn analytically to uh, cities, uh, Seoul or Keijo chief among them. Um, and I, I would also add that that for the most part, scholarship on colonialism in Korea has been discourse oriented. It's been discursive by and large in its analysis uh, and hasn't paid much attention to uh, the material, um, the, the material underpinnings of colonial rule, um, the, the stuff of everyday life, uh, the ecological and environmental consequences of Japan's occupation of Korea. Uh, and so for me as a graduate student, just surveying the field, that gap was particularly striking. The, the fact that very little, if anything, had been written in English about uh, kind of um, the the materials that sustained the colonial project, that that sustains settler colonialism. Um, and, and so, for me, it was uh, that that was an obvious thing I needed, I wanted to tackle in my uh, own research, and that quite naturally kind of forced me to get out of the city and uh, into the woods. Um, and I would add that once I did, it became pretty clear that there was also a um, tendency among scholars of, um, uh, I, I think you could say this of, of Japan as, as well as Korea, uh, to privilege um, the rice paddy. Uh, there's, uh, it, to the extent that scholars have examined uh, agrarian life, the countryside in colonial Korea, uh, they have looked at the cultivation and intensification of, of rice production. 
Um, and uh, that makes sense. I mean, riziculture is uh, was the backbone of the agrarian economy. It, it, the centuries of pat, of land use patterns had groomed the landscapes in very particular ways, uh, and and so I it it, it makes uh, good sense for scholars to want to look at uh, the development of. Um, uh, rice production under colonial rule, the transformation of the market for rice, the circulation of rice back to the archipelago. Uh, These are all really important questions, but very few scholars have um, looked beyond the rice paddy to the woodlands and watersheds that surround uh, this farmland. Um, And and that to me was another, I think, real opportunity as a a researcher is to uh, better, more firmly situate uh, the agrarian economy the um, farming communities and villages that have uh, um, uh, been the subject of considerable research within the broader uh, landscapes that define the Korean Peninsula. And here I think it's it's worth uh, just briefly noting that over 70% of the Korean landmass itself is comprised of mountains and forests. Um, and the, this statistic is quite similar for, for Japan as well. These are uh, heavily mountainous landscapes. And, and so it's, it's high time that we begin to kind of pose questions about the, the mountains that really do uh, and, and forests that, that define uh, the environmental context uh, of, these, uh, of this colonial occupation. The last thing I would add on, on this front is um, that I, I think these mountains and uh, remote uh, and often inaccessible forest spaces are really fruitful to think with. Uh, They provide an opportunity to assess state power from the very margins, the very edges of colonial authority. Uh, The the forests of Korea were spaces of uh, resistance and subversion. They were places where bandit, bandits sought refuge and communist guerrillas staged their insurrection. Uh, and, and so for me, uh, I was also drawn to forest scapes uh, in part because they provided a new vantage point uh, from which to measure the, the limits of state authority and control. Uh, and uh, if you read the book, you'll see that the colonial state often struggled to assert their authority over these uh, mountains and and forests. And to me, I think that's that's another really important story uh, that that needs to be told. Yeah, I mean, I I couldn't agree with you more on sort of on all of those points. Especially uh, the first thing you said was kind of a a, a gut punch as someone who uh, originally wrote a sort of discursive intellectual history and has been. Uh, trying to make up for my transgressions since uh, I'm actually now teaching a, uh, I'm punishing my graduate students for those transgressions with a, <laughs> a, a seminar on uh, material history and environmental history is part of that. And I, don't I think mean, you're absolutely right. I don't mean to disparage the that that scholarship. It's it's groundbreaking right. in in its own right and and hugely in, influential. And, and yep. also, environmental history should not be cleaved from discourse and ideology. Good environmental history looks at both of those things, they operate, they interlocked, interlock with one another. Uh, and so the book itself also looks at kind of ideologies of nature as they're woven into questions of assimilation, for example, in, in colonial Korea. Um, but I, w- I would also kind of position myself within a broader 
trend in Japan studies. There's an imperial turn that's that's quite clear. I think my generation of scholars of Japan have overwhelmingly turned to questions about the empire. There's my book is one of a, a string of books that's going to come out in the next few years that I think is going to fundamentally reassess uh, the the nature of Japanese Im- imperialism. Uh, but on top of that is a material turn. Uh, I, I, I similarly I can point to uh, a half dozen or so books that are really going to take up questions related to materiality and um, uh, get get hands dirty in in their uh, analysis of uh, Japan and, and its empire. And uh, so um, I, I think that that material turn is is also going to prompt some uh, challenge some long-standing assumptions that we've had uh, about the the nature of the empire. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so since you uh, mentioned imperial, you know, the, the, the empire and imperialism uh, as topics here, I want to jump to uh, a question that I had, um, again, to sort of give our readers some context. Um, you specifically are talking about, uh, you know, green imperialism. Um, and, and I'd love if, it, if you could just sort of flesh out what that means for us and kind of what's the, the literature you're engaging with when you talk about green imperialism. Uh, sure. So there is a rich body of scholarship um, that has, for the last few decades, investigated the relationship between territorial expansion and conservationist discourse and practice. And a lot of this um, scholarship has grown out of uh, the uh, kind of foundational work of um, um Richard Grove, uh, who really coined the phrase green Im- imperialism, um, and uh, challenged scholars of Europe uh, to um, think about how colonial peripheries, how the expansion of empires into uh, islands and, and distant landscapes um, uh, well beyond the metropolitan core uh, raised kind of raised an awareness uh, and heightened a sensitivity to environmental change that in turn nurtured a conservationist discourse that uh, it, that the development of uh, the expansion of imperialism is also closely intertwined with uh, new ideas about the natural world, its management and its protection. Uh, and so this this scholarship is was deeply influential for me. It's very much worth reading, in part because it has uh, expanded the bounds of environmental history. It's forced environmental he- historians to think beyond the national framework, which in its time was a, a huge and quite novel contribution. But for for me, it's also struck me as um, uh, incredibly Eurocentric. Uh, green imperialism remains the story of European empires uh, expanding into southerly, often tropical uh, colonies and um, those colonies shaping debates back in uh, London and Paris, the great uh, um, cities of uh, the European continent. And to my mind, uh, uh, a Japan offers an opportunity to kind of track the evolution of a different strand of green imperialism for all the reasons that Conrad Tottman uh, brings to light in the green archipelago. 
scholars the world over now recognize and celebrate Japan for its unique traditions of forestry. And, th- and that's kind of the signal contribution that, that Tottenham has, has made with the Green Archipelago. Uh, environmental, world environmental historians look to Japan as, as uh, uh, a counterexample, an, an alternative in the early modern period um, of, of forest traditions that did not originate in Germany, which has long been considered kind of the cradle of uh, uh, state forestry or scientific forestry. Uh, and so part of what I'm trying to do in this book is to uh, draw attention to the evolution of those forestry traditions into the era of industrial capitalism, high imperialism into the 20th century, uh, and to recognize that uh, Japan and its own empire um, intersected with and, and were inspired by a lot of what was happening a lot of the forestry traditions, techniques, tools in Europe, uh, but also um, uh, clung tightly to their own uh, ideological and cultural um, aspects of the forestry project. Uh, so Japan, w- we should look to Japan and its empire uh, as a case study in a, as sort of an alternative um, track in the development of green imperialism. Uh, And in so doing, I think that that allows us to uh, better appreciate the uh, kind of transnational dimensions of conservationist discourse. Uh, Japanese, the the woodsmen that populate my account, um, studied alongside their counterparts in the great forest academies of Europe, in Germany and France. They were very uh, keen to um, immerse themselves in new scientific theories emanating out of these uh, academies and um, to uh, draw upon the legal frameworks of forestry in, uh, in France and the, the leverage the uh, American timbering technologies. Uh, these all had an, an impact and influence on what was happening in Japan, uh, but they at, at the same time uh, also nurtured their own ideas about uh, forest love thought and uh, forestry as a um, instrument of emperor-centered nationalism. Uh, And all of these things um, had uh, a marked impact on kind of the ideological inflection of forestry as it developed in the colonial context. So uh, for me, the the story of Japan and its empire of forestry, as I call it in in the book, uh, is an opportunity to uh, kind of decenter Europe, to provincialize uh, European foresters, and to, to track the evolution of um, Japan's land use and woodland use traditions uh, into the the modern era. And it seems to me that you're making sort of one um, additional uh, major intervention that you set up in the introduction, which is, I mean, I think you've you've sort of tangentially touched on this already, but uh, this idea that in the prevailing narratives of um, Japanese, the the Japanese uh, uh, forestry regime um, that exist in Korea, they tend to sort of you know, back project uh, the devastation of the Korean forest during wartime and see that as the history of the whole colonial period. 
Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and about why you're problematizing this narrative? Most certainly. Um, it didn't take long for me uh, in my research to, to detect a gap between the, what I was reading in the archive and the popular uh, narratives, the received stories uh, that I had uh, encountered in both scholarship and in my travels in Japan and uh, Korea. Um, in the eyes of the Korean people, and it's worth noting both North and South, um, the Japanese colonial project was, was marked by kind of rapacious destruction ruthless extraction, clear cuts, and sapped woodlands. Uh, and, and that was the true legacy of uh, Japan's uh, colonial forestry project. Um, and they have reason to believe this. Uh, the wartime period, well, well the, the building, the making of Manchu Kuo from 1932 onwards, and I, I think we'll, we'll probably explore that in more detail um, in a few minutes, and also the mobilization for uh, war, uh, the Second Sino-Japanese War from 1937 onwards, uh, laid waste to uh, Korea's forests. I mean, they were absolutely devastating. The the timber harvests uh, that um, and the the kind of command economy for forest products that um, uh, grew alongside the exigencies of um, uh, industrial warfare. Uh, left uh, uh, woodlands that had been reduced to bald mountains, uh, resulted in all sorts of ecological insecurity, fuel scarcity. Uh, so for the Korean people, it, it, it's totally natural that this would be the story that they would tell of um, the principal legacy of colonial rule. Uh, and yet everywhere I looked in the archive, I saw pictures of uh, tree planting ceremonies. I read accounts of Japanese and settlers and corporations planting hundreds of thousands of saplings in the span of uh, just a few days. Uh, I encountered um, forestry bureaucrats uh, uh, allocating funds for the creation of uh, nurseries, uh, seed farms that were the, kind of the engine for these massive industrial scale reforestation projects. Uh, and so for me, I, I needed to square these things. Uh, it, it struck me as entirely insufficient to only tell the story of uh, deforestation during the wartime period, uh, that I needed to uh, restore some complexity to uh, our understanding of the environmental history of Japanese colonialism in Korea by situating the wartime harvest within this much broader project uh, of reforestation and, and uh, forest management more, more generally. And as I did so, as I looked back, uh, as I sort of began to cr critically probe what these reforestation measures look like, I, be I began to recognize uh, that uh, the greening of landscapes in colonial Korea was in itself an act of coercion and colonial violence. Um, and that, that forced me to develop some arguments that I lay out in the introduction of the book about uh, the nature of uh, and, and the power dynamics behind silviculture itself. Uh, we tend to think of uh, planting trees, greening landscapes as these uniformly positive things, investments in uh, in the soil and the renewal of, of the earth. Um, and 
I, I think it, we need to think much more carefully and critically about the uneven costs and consequences of large-scale reforestation initiatives. And this is an argument that I think applies well beyond the case of colonial Korea at a time when uh, leaders are calling for uh, the planting of billions of trees to mitigate climate change, for example. Uh, I think it's worth pausing for a moment and, and thinking very carefully about what's being planted where and at, at to whose benefit uh, and ultimately um, uh who is going to carry out the burden of these reforestation schemes. And I think the case of colonial Korea, it really offers a lot of food for thought in, in thinking about a darker shade of green, as I put it in the introduction to the book, how the greening of landscapes uh, is also a vector for, for coercive force. It, uh, it enables um, the expropriation of land and resources. It outsources the uh, requirements uh, financially and in terms of labor on, on uh, forces that onto the backs of agrarian communities. And, and so uh, this is also an effort to, I, I think, broaden our understanding of the nature of colonial violence itself in, in Korea and beyond by, by looking past the facade uh, of um, reforestation and, and thinking about kind of the um, costs and consequences on the ground uh, for Koreans themselves. Yeah, that was, that's uh, one of one of the sort of uh, compelling and, and fascinating uh, arguments that you made in the book. And so I'm glad we got to it, uh, you know, early on um, in in today's podcast. Um, from here, I want to jump into uh, the the chapters themselves um, and take a look uh, in turn at part one, which is Roots part two, reforms, and part three, campaigns. So starting off with uh, the chapter one, which is part of part one, Roots, uh, this chapter, Imperializing Forestry, um, tracks the development of the uh, of forestry in the, the Meiji period. Um, and you identify uh, what you refer to as four interlocking registers, uh, the centralization of authority, sacralization of sylvan space, professionalization of experts, and expansion of territorial control. Um, could you briefly uh, explain what these are, uh, how together they you know, make up the institutional disposition of Japanese forestry uh, that was then applied sort of later on in Korea? Um, and then in particular, uh, you know, and this is, this is I think, um, you refer to this as compa the compound nature of Meiji forestry. Uh, and I, I suppose that's also in some ways related to the transnational uh, sort of nature of the, the structures of knowledge and institutional structures that you've already uh, touched on. But I wonder if you could tell us what's important about that as well. Sure. Uh, well, I jammed an awful lot into this uh, chapter in, in part because it, it really is just setting the, the stage for the reform agenda rolled out by colonial forestry uh, bureaucrats in Korea um, up, upon Japan's annexation of the peninsula. Um, and one of the, the, the way that I decided to sort of organize all of these different things, I mean, the Meiji era forestry reforms are multifaceted. There are a lot of dimensions to them. Uh, and so I, I really tried to distill them down to uh, what I saw as the, the four uh, most important uh, transformations, and all of them are interlocking. Uh, e each one influences the other. Um, the centralization, in, in drawing attention to what I call the, the centralization of authority, what I'm, I'm really trying to do is highlight how forestry became a 
far more statist endeavor, at least when compared to Tokugawa forestry. Um, in compound, in contrast to sort of the decentralized, decentralized composite nature of uh, Tokugawa forestry, as described by Topman, uh, Meiji era forestry bureaucrats demanded centralized managerial authority. Uh, this meant, uh, above all else, uh, a new sylvan or sylvic survey uh, and the redistribution of woodland tenure rights. Um, forestry bureaucrats in the Meiji period had very little tolerance uh, for customary usage arrangements, things like iriai, for example, um, uh, that left the status, uh, the ownership status of woodland parcels ambiguous. What they wanted more than anything else were hard and fast boundaries on land registers that would um, situate each and every woodlot within a capitalist s- system of uh, land ownership, wherein each lot could be Uh, bought and sold. Uh, This was a part of their broader developmental agenda. So uh, a big part of this project of centralization was simply remapping the woodlands uh, and uh, kind of delineating who owned what uh, um, and uh, what each parcel was was valued at. Uh, And this was, as one can imagine, uh, a painful process um, for uh, agrarian communities across the archipelago, it really was an affront. It was a violation of uh, the uh, arrangements, um, the mutual agreements that had long sort of sustained the cooperation between officialdom uh, at the local level uh, and um, villagers themselves. Uh, so there's a great deal of resistance to this campaign uh, that I, I try to touch on. I don't go into nearly as much detail as I would like. I mean, this is fascinating in its own right, and some great scholarship has been written in Japan, in Japanese, on on this very topic. Uh, but uh, agrarian communities push back. They don't. Uh, they many of them refuse to simply hand over the deeds to uh, the woodlots that had long surrounded their their uh, villages, and these are woodlands on which they are. Uh, dependent for uh, fuel, fodder, fertilizer, um, the kind of um, chief uh, or or vital inputs for their own uh, livelihoods. Um, And so the, especially the first decade or so of this, um, of these Meiji era reforms are defined by uh, swift deforestation, really an unraveling of uh, the forestry system that had been developed over centuries before it. Um, uh, centralization causes all sorts of um, problems of, of oversight um, and resistance that, that result in bald mountains in many different corners of the archipelago. And there's a great irony here, of course, because the Japanese, just a couple decades later, go on to um, label the Korean Peninsula the land of bald mountains. Um, when the the reality is that Japan had plenty of bald mountains all its own, um, not a couple of decades prior to that. Um, so this this should force us to to push back against uh, Japanese efforts to um, kind of signal their own uh, righteousness, their own credentials as a um, as having a uniquely green thumb. Um, by the 
sacralization of sylvan space, I mean the process whereby forests were freighted with new meaning as symbols of the emperor and his resplendent green realm. Uh, by the 1880s, 1890s, uh, forests were being braided tightly into new ideas about state authority, imperial fealty, and Japan's status as a colonizing power in Asia. Uh, trees and forests became fixtures of uh, state rituals and a means to inculcate the Japanese people with a sense of national identity and national pride. Uh, to plant trees was to serve the com- uh, to serve the the, the country um, and uh, to protect and restore the the soil um, uh, one one sapling at a time. Uh, and, and so trees take on all sorts of uh, new meanings, new significance during this this period as well, and uh, are are um, used by ideologues um, to. Uh, help elevate the emperor in particular as sort of being the great forest steward of of the nation. The section on professionalization uh, charts the emergence of a new new generation of woodsmen in Japan. These are the bureaucrats and technicians who turned the wheels of governance. Uh, uh, Of course, Foresters had and um, woodcutters had groomed uh, the woodlands of Japan for generations uh, before the Meiji period. Uh, but here I show how the creation of new academies, new forestry schools in Japan, uh, immersion in European methods, trips abroad to the great forestry institutions of Europe, uh, study tours of industrial forestry operations in the Pacific Northwest, uh, these and other things uh, all, kind of also transformed and ha- had a marked influence on uh, how Japanese woodsmen saw their own profession uh, and also were integrated into uh, intellectual networks that spanned the globe. Um, it, it's worth highlighting that uh, a lot of these professional foresters uh, are in direct contact, in correspondence with counterparts in uh, British India and French Indochina. They are actively studying uh, the forest, forestry, colonial forestry projects elsewhere. Uh, and uh, a lot of this comes as a result of uh, their um, th- this process of professionalization and their, um, their travels abroad. Uh, so what I'm essentially doing in, that, in this subsection is mapping the development of a new technocratic class, uh, the individuals who cut their teeth as um, uh, the visionaries of um, forestry reforms in the Meiji period, who then go on to occupy prominent positions in colonial bureaucracies, Korea included, uh, to roll out a whole new set of uh, forestry reforms uh, that try to that are in service of uh, the colonial state and its own developmental agenda. And then finally in this section, um, I show how all of this unfolded against the backdrop of territorial expansion, uh, placing woodlands across the empire under the oversight of uh, these professional foresters uh, and raising questions about the control of, of woodland space that would go on to inform uh, the administration of, of Korea's own 
Highlands. Um, so I show, for example, in this section how legal frameworks forged in Hokkaido, uh, skirmishes with Aboriginal communities in Taiwan, and corporate actors like the Oji Paper Company in Karafuto uh, all laid the groundwork for Japan's uh, forestry project in Korea. Uh, and this is really what I mean when I talk about the empire of, of forestry. The book is focused principally on Korea. It is in many ways a case study of Korea, but it also tries to situate the Korean peninsula within the empire as a whole uh, and to draw out some of the institutional and interpersonal connections uh, that bound all of these forestry projects uh, together. Um, and we need to recognize that by the time uh, forestry bureaucrats are dispatched to the Korean Peninsula in the early 1900s. Uh, many of them have already um, had stints in Taiwan or Karafuto or Hokkaido, um, and all of these experiences um, animate and inform the their own visions uh, for uh, um, administering the forests of Korea. So, uh, in so as you say, I mean, this is um, a case study of uh, Korea, and you've talked about some of the uh, sort of stories that were these narratives that were mobilized uh, in the service of settler colonialism um, about uh, even the bald mountains of Korea and Korean sort of mismanagement of the land, etc. Um, this is something that you really take up in chapter two. Uh, so after the 1905 uh, you know, establishment of a Korean protectorate and then colonization in 1910, um, the, the Japanese are uh, now sort of, you know, they're, they're in charge of the Korean forest. What was the state of those forests that they're taking over? Um, and then how was that seen by Japanese observers? Um, and, and it seems to me that you're, 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 you're drawing out these narratives on the one hand of like the debasement of the forests and the potential of the forests. Um, and so I'm curious about how those are coexisting. This is a great question. It's also perhaps the most loaded question one could ask about my project uh, and has been uh, one of the most challenging aspects of this research um, from the very beginning. Um, it Methodologically, it, it was really quite difficult to sort out the biased rhetoric of the Japanese um, from the reality of deforestation on the ground. If you read exclusively the travel accounts of Japanese settlers and the impressionistic accounts of officials, uh, you'd encounter what is essentially kind of a bifurcated landscape. Uh, primarily, Korea was a land of bald mountains and red earth. Hageyama uh, were uh, across the horizon um, in, in most accounts. And um, this rhetoric is totally pervasive. It's also totally um, hyperbolic and self-serving. Uh, the, the Japanese uh, uh, exaggerated the extent of deforestation as a way to shore up their own credentials as a modernizing power, to uh, bolster their status as... Um, uh, as um, colonizers and to uh, kind of lend credence to uh, the civilizing mission uh, that they were embarking on in, in the uh, Korean context. So uh, they had every reason to overstate um, uh, the extent of deforestation and, and they did so. Um, 
However, uh, they were not, while hyperbolic, um, over the top, uh, even uh, some of the scientists that I look at were just so far off the mark in terms of uh, gauging the extent of deforestation. Um, They they weren't entirely wrong. Um, These characterizations of Korea as a land of, of bald mountains were not divorced from reality. They came from somewhere. And so some of them, uh, a lot of the research in, for, for this particular chapter was trying to get a better sense of uh, the nature, uh, the drivers and scope of deforestation across the late Choson period, um, really 19th century Korea, uh, which is in a lot of ways a um, gray area in Korea's forest history. We um, There's been a lot of great work done in Korean scholarship on the early Choson forestry. Uh, we know that Korea had its own rich traditions of forest management. This is something that my uh, dear friend John Lee uh, is looking at in his own research. We'll have a book coming out um, shortly on, on this very topic. But as far as how that system dealt with some of the systemic crises of the 19th century, uh, overpopulation, um, uh, issues of drought and various envi- environmental problems, the strains of um, uh, multilateral imperialism in the 19th century, the arrival of gunboats, uh, all of these things compound um, issues of, of deforestation um, and um, uh, pose all sorts of challenges to uh, the Choson officials uh, overseeing the, their their own system of, of forest management. Uh, and so deforestation was uh, acute, in especially in the southern and southwestern, well, let's just say the southern parts of, of the peninsula. Um, and this is something that is uh, evidenced by photographs. I mean, if you, if you turn to uh, uh, photographs from the period, it's quite clear that a lot of these uh, mountain, mountainous areas are uh, heavily denuded. Uh, it's borne out by the timber market. Uh, prices rose steadily over the uh, course of the 19th century. Uh, everything from co- the timber needed to construct coffins to fuel um, um, rose in price, which is indicative of scarcity. The disappearance of things like tigers um, and ginseng from Korea, I think, stand as proxies for deforestation, suggests that uh, deforestation pushed these um, populations to their limits. And then pervasive issues, uh, the the practice of uh, Swidden cultivation um, uh, most certainly played a role in all of this. Uh, Korean communities, as they were pushed off of uh, dry and wet agricultural lands, were forced into the highlands uh, where they set fire to clear landscapes for um, their own uh, um, set of uh, agricultural practices, shifting cultivation, if you will. And uh, that uh, also exacerbated the deforestation. So there is uh, there are lots of reasons why we need to recognize that uh, Korea was Defor- that parts of Korea were deforested, deforested, but we also need to be very careful to push back uh, a, and have a critical eye toward the um, this discourse of environmental 
degradation that went a step further. It, it didn't just allege that the force had been denuded. Uh, it, it alleged that that denudation was a expression of the deprivation of the Korean people themselves, that they were uh, inherently profligate, um, that they were selfish and lazy and would rather uh, slumber on their ondol floors than uh, take the time to regenerate woodlands on behalf of the nation. So this is also, uh, th- this discourse is used as a cudgel um, uh, to um, uh place the Korean people and Korean culture uh, beneath uh, their new colonial uh, rulers. At the same time that they are doing this and that they are um, really trying to highlight the extent of deforestation uh, in the South, they are also uh, painting a portrait of an almost Edenic forest paradise in the the north, the Yalu and Tumen river basins along kind of the borderlands with Manchuria. Um, and this is seen as an, a, an exhaustive, uh, an, a bottomless pool of, of resources. This was um, uh, the great green realm of Korea that was, uh, that kind of sang the siren song to colonial boosters and industrialists alike. And, and so, uh, you, this is what I mean when I say a bifurcated uh, description or discourse, or even you could call it an imagined geography of the Korean Peninsula. Uh, they, the, the the South is a blighted wasteland, but the North is uh, this uh, rich, bottomless um, treasure trove of forests that awaits the Japanese timber industrialist. And it, it, it's only it, it makes a lot of sense that these two discourses can kind of coexist, operate alongside one another. Um, They needed, by playing up deforestation and the maladministration of forests, they can justify their own colonial power, their own colonial rule, um, and and kind of clear the land for settler colonists. That's the other piece of this is uh, only with the industrial industrious spirit of settlers and their silvicultural savvy uh, can the Korean landscape be reclaimed. Uh, so this is also kind of in service of the needs of industrial settlers. But they also want to entice corporate Japan. They also want uh, capitalists and investors to uh, make their way to Korea to... Uh, um, undertake and in more importantly underwrite uh, forestry projects uh, that the colonial state itself uh, was incapable of implementing uh, and so by by drawing attention by reminding these boosters that yeah everything's wasted in in it's it's bald mountains south of the Yalu uh, but wait until you see what what awaits you there uh, they were able to uh, simultaneously kind of cultivate new partners in forest management and reclamation uh, that really became pivotal to their reform agenda uh, over the 1910s and 20s. Yeah, I guess, uh, unfortunately, you know, living in uh, California, as you do these days, this this must seem more, rele- more, <laughs> more painfully relevant than you oh, ever thought it might be. Uh, 
I, I, I'm sure there's a joke about sweeping the forest here, but I think we probably should refrain <laughs> from that and move on to part two, oh, brother. Um, which is uh, part two is reforms. And so in chapter three, uh, writing the woodlands, um, you write that the first order for Japan uh, in Korea was very similar, I, I guess. Uh, it's sort of the way I took it to uh, what it was in the Meiji period, which was the rationalization of woodland tenure rights. Um, so I assume that the uh, you know my, my sort of reading of this is that it was a quite sort of similar process. Um, but you also say that it was a long and tortured process that, uh, as you've hinted elsewhere, sort of veiled the coercive, as you put it, coercive mechanisms of expropriation and enclosure behind the optics of growth and renewal. Um, so can you tell us uh, about uh, how woodland tenure rights were rationalized in Korea and whether and, and to what degree that was similar to the process that had played out in Japan? Um, well, it's it's quite similar. Um, I mean, just at, at the most fundamental level, it's a process of um, clarifying and establishing hard and fast boundaries uh, for woodland tenure rights. So uh, again, each and every parcel could be attributed to um, an individual owner. Um, and similar, also similar to Japan, it, it was a um, deeply contested process um, the, the Korean people uh, were not going to sit idly by and watch uh, colonial administrators come in and um, uh, erect new boundaries or tell them what they could or could not take from the surrounding forests. Um, and there's an added charge to all of this, which is that these forests were often connected in the Korean context to burial rites and burial practices, uh, traditions of ancestor worship. Uh, and so this wasn't just a matter of uh, like a utilitarian matter of access to fuel. For many communities, it was uh, the preservation of uh, their um, their kin, their their lines of descent and their, their ancestors that were um, uh, fixtures of the rites and rituals of agrarian life in, in Korea uh, and remain so to this day. Um, so there's, there's sort of an added charge to these politics in the, in the Korean context. Um, and, um, I guess there's, there's two things that really struck me about this, uh, this process. One is how long it took, um, the, uh, no sooner did had the for, did forestry officials arrive than they began to draw up plans for this process, and they expected it to go on for a couple of years. Of course, mapping the entirety of the peninsula wasn't easy, but in reality, it took them over thirty years to finalize uh, these um, the maps of woodland ownership and to establish a comprehensive system of woodland tenure rights. And what I realized in the process of of really just trying to understand this system is that these forestry officials prove themselves to be far more adaptable um, and even constrained than we often consider. Um, forestry or the, the colonial state in a lot of uh, scholarship, uh, certainly of Korea, but I think uh, in, in other colonies as well, is often sort of treated as this faceless entity that carries out the will of officialdom with ruthless efficiency, 
but we don't we don't really know much about the individuals, the the bureaucrats themselves that uh, that brought these plans to to life. And that's one of the things that I also try to do in the book is to look at the architects of forestry reform so that we can kind of add a touch of human complexity so that we can recognize that uh, forestry officials failed, they caved, they pivoted, they regrouped, they were boxed in by forces often beyond their control. And this process of woodland tenure reform is a really great example of that. Uh, the They had these really great ambitions in the in 1910 uh, that were uh, reined in progressively um, by major setbacks in, in the process and concerns over uh, uh, insurrection and um, concerns over the optics and the politics of uh, woodland access following the March first uh, uprising of 1919. Uh, all of these things go on to shape the the rollout of uh, forestry policy and kind of draw out this process far longer than one might think. And, and so for me, this this was really an opportunity to bring to the fore. Uh, to, to, to highlight the fact that uh, the colonial state is not a monolith and that these forestry officials really did struggle uh, to um, implement their agenda uh, when they came up against uh, forces, environmental, political, geopolitical, and market forces uh, that, that were well, well beyond their control. And that often forced them back to their drawing boards. The second aspect of this process that I think is really noteworthy is the extent to which it sets up what I call the greenification framework uh, that defined Japan's um, uh, forestry project in, in colonial Korea. Um, forestry bureaucrats, uh, Saito Otosaku, chief among them, um, recognized that in redrawing the maps of uh, woodland ownership, they also had an opportunity to bleed off uh, a lot of uh, the denuded, deforested parts of Korea um, to Japanese corporations and capitalists. And to do so, they they established this system of uh, land leasing, wherein uh, uh, deforested parcels of land would be leased to a Japanese corporation or settler or whoever uh, could take on the project. And um, that actor would then have to meet a set of state-established criteria for regenerating, reclaiming that landscape. And once they did so, they then were entitled to the ownership rights in perpetuity. Uh, And this system proved remarkably effective in... Uh, outsourcing the heavy lifting uh, of reforestation, often very a very capital intensive project. It was not cheap um, to um, marshal the labor to get a hold of the seeds and saplings required for these projects. The state often couldn't do it, so they turned to Sumitomo Forestry, Mitsui Forestry, the OG Paper Company, uh, a, a long list of uh, colonial industrialists and entrepreneurs, as well as some settlers, um, to to really kind of breathe life into that process. Um, and uh, in the process, <laughs> over the course of doing so, 
uh, a great deal of Korea's mountains and forests uh, fell under Japanese title. Um, and, and so if, if we are to understand um, the control of Korea's woodlands, we need to recognize the central importance of this woodlands tenure system, but especially the leasing system baked within it uh, that enabled uh, the, the colonial state to um, place uh, a significant portion of uh, Korea's woodlands under the control of Japanese actors. And that, that they were able to do so under the guise of reforestation made the optics of this process that much more palatable. Um, it, 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 they could kind of cloak it in the rhetoric of benevolent rule, uh, that they were doing, uh, this was an investment in the, uh, in the soil for everyone's benefit. Um, when the reality was that the, a lot of these corporations were simply cashing in. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Um, and this whole idea of the sort of greenification uh, framework there, I think, underpins a lot of uh, what comes along uh, afterwards. Um, another, another of these sort of foundational uh, factors in Japanese colonial um, you know, forestry management in Korea, I think, is, is one that you take up in Chapter 4, Engineering Growth, where you focus on the uh, forest experiment stations, uh, which you describe as a a network of research sites that placed Korea's forests firmly under the lab coat authority of Japan's scientific establishment, which, uh, by the way, as somebody writing about the history of nutrition science, I'm, I'm definitely going to be using that phrase. Uh, so <laughs> appreciate it in advance. Um, can you just tell us about the research centers, though, and the in particular, the uneasy alliance, as you describe it, between Japanese and Korean scientists uh, within the centers? Um, and the hybridization of knowledge forms that occurred there, uh, and then how that became implemented uh, in actual forestry and in society. Sure. Um, well, uh, these research sites are fascinating on a number of levels. Uh, they grew from this sort of a homespun effort uh, of just a, a two or three uh, scientists, kind of pioneering scientists, uh, to collect and categorize plants in Korea into this kind of sprawling complex of cutting edge research facilities um, established across the, the peninsula. Um, so part of what I'm doing in this chapter is, is just mapping out institutionally the development of um, these uh, research facilities, laboratories, and the seed farms that developed alongside of them in order to better understand the ecological signature of colonial rule. And one of the points I drive home here is that scientists really did play a central role in deciding what was planted, where, and how it was planted. Uh, so if we're to think about kind of the ecologically what the legacies of Japanese colonialism are, we need to appreciate uh, the insights and of the scientists and the influence that their own research and their, their conclusions, their findings had for the decisions the colonial state made about the particular ecological interventions they were going to make across Korea's variegated landscape. Um, and it's, uh, it's w worth noting that the Japanese were very much kind of alive to the fact that they needed to understand the Korean landscape before cementing policy. Um, they, 
re- recognize while many were were keen to uh, keen on the idea of just kind of turning the peninsula into the archipelago, taking the best of Japan's flora and transplanting it onto the the peninsula, onto Korea, uh, into Korean soil. Uh, most forest administrators knew better, uh, and they turned to scientists to understand the climate, the uh, soil acidification. Um, the dynamics of um, uh, watershed management, um, sunlight qualities, and uh, the, the, the list goes on and on so that they could kind of tailor their uh, reforestation, their silvicultural agenda to the, the particular needs and qualities of the landscape and, and to recognize the regionality of things, that what, what was planted uh, in Jeju Island to the south uh, could not be the same thing as um, uh, the um, uh, the northern provinces, um, and, and so scientists really do play a pivotal role. When I started to look into the role of those scientists and their research activities, I realized that there's a, a, a that a fascinating story could also be told about colonial collaboration of a different sense. I mean, the politics of collaboration in colonial Korea is, is a topic. That is um, uh, well established among scholars, but seldom do we think about collaboration between scientists, Japanese and Korean scientists. So um, this chapter is is an attempt to uh, try to better understand some of the kind of institutional and cultural dynamics that are at work in shaping the research agenda of uh, these forest scientists in Korea, uh, and especially to to better understand the hybridization of knowledge forms that the Japanese could not do what they needed to do. They could not wrap their minds around Korea's own forestry traditions the um, uh, or, or gain access to specimen to uh, different plants and seeds without Korean partners. They, they were heavily dependent on uh, Koreans to, to grant them access to that knowledge, to uh, those materials. Uh, and that collaboration uh, is, is really at the heart of some of the most important scientific innovations that animate Japan's uh, colonial forestry practices in Korea. I will spare you the details. You'll have to read the book to to learn about what some of those innovations are, uh, but they really would not have been possible without uh, the contributions of some of Korea's pioneering um, scientists who face discrimination, uh, institutional and cultural, at every turn of, of the story. Um, and these, sci- these Korean scientists are important too uh, because they go on after liberation from colonial rule to really be to, to occupy prominent positions in South Korea's uh, forestry service in the reforestation initiatives of Park Chung-hee uh, and, and uh, their stories, their trajectories uh, cannot be told without kind of recognizing how they grew out of the colonial context um, and its scientific institutions. Uh, first, I want to congratulate you on a well-placed plug for the book. I was, I was, <laughs> Admirably done. Um, and I want to then move on to uh, chapter five, where you're 
sort of moving into uh, some 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 more of the technical aspects of of the actual project of uh, forestry management on the ground. Um, but you start off the chapter by observing that uh, quote with the onset of J- Japan's colonial occupation, some of the supposed defects of the region by which we're, we mean the the Korean Peninsula uh, morphed into its virtues. Um, what exactly do you mean by this, and then how did it play out specifically in the Yalu River Basin, which became the focus of an effort uh, by Japanese te- technocrats and engineers, quote, to integrate plants, ports, hydroelectric dams, urban complexes, and infrastructure into a master plan for regional development uh, in order to demonstrate the power of a civilized uh, scientific Japan as the natural leader of Asia. So, um, and one of the real challenges in constructing this book is that I decided to organize my chapters thematically, uh, which I think makes sense. It allowed me to cover a whole range of um, issues, but it also posed real challenges with um, narrative and s- storytelling, mapping a clear story a- across time. Um, uh, and th- this chapter is really organized around the development of the timber industry itself. And this is really where I delve into the materiality dimension uh, much more deeply than in other chapters to try to understand to uh, here's where I really trace the flow of timber to the marketplace to understand where the construction materials, the rail ties, the charcoal, the tannins, the biofuels uh, that um, were all um, essential to Japan's the colonial state's developmental agenda, its blueprints for urbanization, for agrarian improvement, where these came from. Um, And by and large, as I tried to trace timber to market, I realized that uh, all all roads led back to the Yalu River Basin, um, to this sort of borderland, a riverine uh, landscape uh, along the border with uh, Manchuria that, that became in the colonial period, the hub of a very dynamic, but also um, very fraught uh, industrial um, timbering operation. And that, and it was the, the real hub, the epicenter of all of this was Shinwiju, um, which uh, became, a, was a major port town, but, but grew by 1920 was the timber capital of Korea. And it was where a vast majority of its timber products um were shipped out from. Uh, Before there was a timber industry in the Yalu, um, before there were, there was, before the Japanese had even kind of colonized Korea, this region was long thought of as a cultural backwater. Uh, In the eyes of uh, Choson officials, uh, the Northern provinces, but especially this kind of remote um, upland area was was a, a place of cultural depravity. It was one that was in close proximity to barbarians uh, in Manchuria, and and so was was kind of marked uh, as um, uh, a cultural um, wasteland, um, if you will. Um, in in one one that had yet to really be developed, or that that merited. Um, uh, or, or, representation uh, amongst the the uh, Choson aristocracy. Um, in the eyes of the colonial officials that, that came decades later, 
Uh, this was a treasure trove of resources. Um, but just as importantly, it was also a stepping stone to Manchuria. Um, and the relationship between Korea and Manchuria is really important to uh, understanding the nature of the forestry project, and especially the kind of um, the market and economic circuitry that uh, shaped the flow of forest resources across the empire. Um, Korea, of course, a lot of the forests, a lot of the materials furnished from the forests of the Yalu made their way to Seoul and other major cities and uh, areas across the Korean Peninsula. But from 1932 onwards, the principal destination was uh, Manchuria, was Manchukuo, um, which was then the site of uh, this massive project of, of kind of building a new heaven on earth of uh, trans fueled by utopian ideas of uh, hypermodern cities and um, uh, industrial zones. And, and a lot of the making of uh, Manchuria required material inputs from Korea. And this put, it, uh, interestingly, and I, th I think one of the novel contributions of this chapter in particular, is that it, it shows uh, that there's a great deal of antagonism between Korea and Manchuria. We tend to think of different colonial units as, as being part of this broader project of operating harmoniously with one another. And I sh as I show in chapter five, uh, the timber industry in, in headquartered in Shinwiju and its counterpart in Andong on the Manchurian side were routinely at loggerheads with one another uh, over everything from the uh, access to routes to float timber downstream to uh, timber tariff policies back in the metropole. Uh, so there's a great deal of antagonism uh, and the Korean timber industry is routinely subordinated to the interests of their counterparts across the Yalu. Uh, so this is, a, I think, an, an interesting story about intra-imperial tensions uh, that um, hasn't really, has seldom been uh, told. The last thing I, I would add here is that I also try to map what I call a fluid geography of development uh, to show how um, the forest, the, the timber trade, the timber industry, was only as good as the um, infrastructure um, and mobility behind it. Uh, timber had to make its way to market. And for that, it required uh, rafting. It required logging roads uh, and railways uh, that um, uh, grew in um, tandem with the industry itself. And, but often that the logic of that uh, infrastructure uh, was upended uh, or subordinated by uh, new geopolitical developments, uh, shifts in the marketplace, um, deterioration of the timber marketplace over the 1930s, uh, and new projects like the damming of the Yalu River um, much later in the 1930s. Uh, that upended uh, the, this geography and forced the timber industry to uh, adapt and uh, establish kind of new circuitry, new ways of moving timber to marketplace. And so this is also sort of a, an effort to 
think a little bit more carefully about the geography uh, of developing the North um, and to situate the timber industry within this broader history, uh, this broader effort by the colonial state uh, to transform the Yalu and the northern provinces uh, into um, this um, sort of site of mega engineering and um, uh, industrial um, uh, productivity. Yeah, so that that history of the... um timber industry, I think, uh, contrasts nicely with what you're doing in uh, chapter six, which is civic forestry. Um, and this is the last chapter of, of part two of uh, the, the your part two reforms. Um, so here you're looking at the forest owners associations uh, and state-led projects of civic forestry. Um, so actually, this is something I wanted you to sort of flesh out for the readers a little bit, like this sort of apparent tension or contradiction between uh, civic forestry and state-led forestry. Um, and then uh, what were the forest owners associations? How did they function? Um, and how did they function in particular, as you put it, to compel rather than coerce forest management and pave the way for wartime forestry? So a big part of what ha- has always drawn me to forests and forest history is just there there many uses forests are simultaneously many different things um, at a material level they they are repositories of all sorts of resources um, as as spaces there there are places for ancestor worship for burial for for uh, spiritual rites and rituals um, and they're important for agriculture uh, as well for all, all sorts of different reasons. And once you appreciate kind of the myriad uh, utility of uh, forests, you can you can see how problematic uh, this effort on the part of the colonial government to tell woodland owners what to do with their land uh, would become. And so that that tension is really at the heart of um, this chapter where I, I try to show how the Japanese government, once they finalized the maps of woodland ownership, set out to continue to have a say in how the Korean people were using their forests and also the efforts uh, in turn of the Korean people to push back uh, against the colonial officials uh, who were telling them uh how to use the land that was rightfully theirs. Um, and for Japanese officials, the obvious way to go about this was to, to kind of take a lesson from reforms back in Japan and to roll out a, a new type of institution, um, a forest owners association that, that had long been kind of the heart and soul of community-based forestry back in Japan. Uh, and, to, to use that to create kind of what I call new connective tissue between state and society in the countryside. Um, and that's exactly what they do over the course of the 1920s and into the 1930s. Uh, they really try to twist the arms of uh, Korean woodland owners. A vast majority of them are farmers um, to join these institutions uh, so that they could have greater oversight um, so that they could, um, have new structures for surveillance and discipline on, on these communities. 
uh, and especially so that they could ensure that uh, agrarian communities, villages were engaged only in state-sanctioned market activities. Um, so ultimately, this is, is sort of uh, a ploy to ensure that uh, Korean woodland owners were engaged in the sorts of economic activities that uh, were in line with, aligned with the priorities of the, the state itself. Um, and it was added bonus that they also generated revenue uh, for local governments, for provincial governance, governments in terms of the fees that would be paid by woodland owners. Um, and so for all of these reasons, they really try to impress on uh, the on Korean farming communities the importance of joining these institutions. They turn to local leaders, people of influence uh, to uh, help them uh, boost enrollment. And for the most part, they are successful. Forest owners, uh, owners associations grow in number and scope um, in terms of membership quite markedly over the 1920s. But there are lots of holdouts um, as well. And one of the things I do in this chapter is recreate one of the biggest and most violent um, uh, conflicts that emerges as a result of this uh, this campaign, this effort to coerce force locals into joining these associations um, in the in the township of Tanchon, uh, which um, really leads to a violent uh, uprising that ultimately um, undoes this larger project of civic forestry in in many ways, uh, forcing the the colonial government to turn to Koreans' own folkways and forestry institutions to sort of rebrand this project of um, uh, gaining control over farming communities. Uh, I will spare you details here, too, so that you are forced to read the book and, and learn more about uh, the, the nature of this particular blow-up. Um, by and large, these forces... Uh, these four, let me just, I'll just conclude by saying that these forces, uh, owners associations are especially um, important, or I should say this project of civic forestry grows especially important over the 1930s in the face of economic hardship, turmoil uh, in the countryside, in the agrarian economy um, that comes as a result in the wake of the, the, the Great Depression. There's a precipitous drop in uh, rice prices. Uh, this destabilizes agrarian life in uh, all different corners of the Korean Peninsula, as it does back in Japan and, and elsewhere. Um, and so more and more uh, foresters turn to these sorts of civic forestry associations to try to tighten the, the social fabric of uh, farming communities, to usher in new programs of resource austerity, of debt relief, uh, of and also of, of kind of a moral improvement uh, of, of uh, uh, these, these agrarian communities. Um, and so th in this sense, this project of civic forestry is, is really vital to understanding the foothold that the colonial state gains over the agrarian economy in the 1930s that enables a much tighter grip over resources, over economic activities, after 1937. And so one of the core arguments of this chapter in particular is that in order to understand wartime forestry and the, the degree to which colonial foresters uh, penetrate the domestic sphere and, and 
uh, force upon the Korean people uh, programs of um, uh, of of resource control uh, and austerity, we need to look at these semi-official organizations created under the under the umbrella of civic forestry uh, that create the, the ties, the pathways for control uh, that intensify over the course of the war. Yeah, and, and uh, not to try and squeeze another uh, detail out of you, but uh, I, I did I did want to talk briefly about uh, the end of the chapter where you use the example of a German geographer, uh, Hermann Lautensach, to uh, talk about the state of Korean forestry in 1933. So what did Lautensach see when he visited the peninsula and why is that important? He saw a gap between the aims and ambitions of foresters at the center uh, and the reality of woodland access on the ground. Um, And I think this is really quite important. Lautensack is in many ways a problematic observer. He, He was most certainly sympathetic to the colonial officials who hosted him. Um, and had very um, laudatory things to say about um, the modernizing agenda of the the colonial state. But nevertheless, he was deeply critical of the forestry project, uh, of of what he saw on the ground, which was a lot of inefficiency. Um, It was um, a lot of toothless enforcement, uh, mandates being, edicts being handed down at the center that really carried no weight at at the local level. And the persistence of these systemic problems of woodland access that would ultimately undo any progress for reforestation. Lautensack, for example, uh, points to uh, ample evidence of the persistence of um, Sweden cultivation, Hwajon, uh, slash and burn agriculture, essentially, uh, that, that uh, he recognized as a byproduct, a pernicious byproduct of land tenure reforms. The, the Japanese officials were investing um, in all sorts of reforestation programs. And by the 1930s, the, the fruits of their labor were beginning to show. You could see second growth forests uh, in many different parts of the peninsula, but you could also see a ballooning population of um, landless, penniless uh, Koreans uh, forced into the highlands to burn their way through these um newly planted forests. And so I think Lautensack provides a a really compelling uh, account of the kind of structural and systemic problems that lie behind uh, the whatever progress had been forged by uh, colonial officials, whatever their intentions. Yeah, thank you. Um, Yeah, I thought that was a a particularly sort of interesting uh, uh, sort of set of observations that Lautensack is making uh, at the, and it's a nice way to sort of round out uh, part two. Uh, And that also brings us to part three uh, campaigns. Um, And here we get to uh, chapter seven, forest love thought, which was a a phrase that you made reference to early on. And I'm sure uh, at least a few people in the audience, probably their ears perked off and thought, you know, what, what, (laughs) Um, which was, you know, it, it, forest love thought is a, uh, not necessarily transparent phrase. And so I'd love to know, uh, you know, get to talk a little bit about what it was um, and then how it acted as what you call an ideological lubricant to facilitate the establishment of a command economy for natural resources. Um, 
in the late 1930s and into the 1940s. Uh, in particular, how did this uh, forest love thought exemplify the sort of ambivalence of the Japanese-Korean colonial relationship um, and fit within the assimilationist rhetoric of the wartime Japanese empire at the time? Sure. Well, it, it was a term, uh, uh, a compound phrase, Irene Shiso, uh, that I encountered everywhere in the archives. So there, there was no way that I, w- I wasn't going to write a chapter kind of centered on uh, this term. Um, but as I tried to figure out what it was, what Forest Love Thought is, it, it, it became clear that it, it was a lot of different things at once. It, uh, I call it a in the book, a many-sided rhetorical device. It was at once a set of values and practices, um, getting out in nature, um, not wasting nature, being attuned to um, waste and um, doing whatever one could to conserve on behalf of the nation. It was a spiritual plane, uh, a state of being. Uh, it was to appreciate sort of the transcendence of the natural world and, and forests in, in particular, uh, to um, uh, recognize the spiritual salvation and purity that came from a, a nice walk in the woods. Um, it was also a set of rites and rituals, sort of calls to action. So the the, the lifeblood of this project of or ideology of Irene Shiso were ceremonial tree plantings um, and their attendant rituals uh, that were mainstays of the calendar in colonial Korea, especially each April. There were these massive um, em, uh, empire-wide, but, but, but also um, Korea-wide ceremonial tree plantings, wherein hundreds of thousands of women, children, colonial officials would come together and uh, um, plant trees, and in so doing, uh, do their part to uh, celebrate the emperor and restore the landscape and the, the vitality of their their native soil. So uh, all of these different registers are kind of wrapped up in this term, Irene Shiso. Um, it's a term that originates really in the mid-Meiji period. You begin to see um, Meiji-era ideologues make reference to what's essentially a, a, a national uh, forest culture, Um uh, this is when some of the, I, I call them the um, the invention of sylvan mythologies uh, in the Meiji period begin to take root. Um, uh, but they are extended and they're, they're used um, in various ways in the colonial context to also demarcate ethnic difference. Um, and, and in this sense, they are, are lie at the heart of these broader debates about uh, climate and culture and assimilation in the colonial context. Uh, Japanese settlers were naturally endowed with these characteristics. Uh, they um, seldom were their conservationist credentials called into question. Koreans, by contrast, were forced at every turn, especially each April, to signal their mastery, their acceptance, their embrace of the principles of Irene Shiso uh, through these grand acts of forest reclamation and silviculture, through um, the, art, the creation of um, art, f- films, drawings, poetry that, that uh, spoke to uh, various dimensions of Irene Shiso. 
um, through their classroom curriculum. So planting trees, conserving forests was also seen as a mechanism for Japanizing the Korean spirit. Uh, and, and that's part of why colonial officials were so eager to draw on um, these massive tree planting ceremonies, for example. They could t- kill two birds with one stone. They could improve the material foundations of Korea and simultaneously inculcate uh, the Korean people with what they saw as new, a new ecological sensibility. Of course, this is totally fraught with contradiction. Uh, for all the lip service that they paid to the kind of Im- importance of uh, tree planting and in the transformation of the Korean spirit, they they seldom accepted Koreans as uh, being on par as forest stewards. They were uh, to the very end sort of subordinated within the sil- sylvan hierarchy of the empire. No matter how many trees they planted, no matter how uh, how robust their appreciation of the flowering cherry blossoms, um, they were never going to be accepted as true peers uh, in this project of uh, forest conservation. Uh, and, and so for me, this was a, a, a way to get at, uh, to, to offer an ecological perspective on a lot of the, of a lot of what's been written about assimilationist discourse and practice in colonial Korea. It's a very robust set of scholarship, but it says next to nothing about the, the role of ideas about uh climate and race and uh, geographical determinism in, in sort of shaping uh, how Japan uh, saw the, the role of environment of colonial environments in, in, in shaping the uh, values and um, uh, environmental practices of their colonial subjects. Yeah. And actually uh, this chapter also contains a really interesting sort of contrast to the the whole sort of question about ideology and Irene Shisol is, uh, which is that um, it's something that you you, you get to uh, in the previous chapter as well, this idea of the colonial tale is wagging the metropolitan dog um, when it comes to forestry science. And here uh, in this chapter, I thought it was really interesting that you you, you touch on the same kind of theme uh, when you're arguing that by the early 1930s, quote, back in Japan, something of a Koreanization of forestry was also taking place. Um, can you tell us what was happening and, and why that was? So th- this is sort of a little tidbit I include at the end of the chapter. I don't go into nearly as much detail as I, as, uh, I would like, uh, but I, it, it was quite striking to me the degree to which foresters back in Japan were taking note of what was happening in Korea. By the late 1930s, uh, they had realized that Korea's own greenification framework, its ryoka undo, uh, were far more sophisticated than anything back at home or elsewhere in the empire. And as the exigencies of re- natural resource management set in under wartime, especially uh, they turned to Korea as sort of a template, as a model for how they could ramp up the mobilization of the Japanese people back at home uh, to undertake new projects of reforestation, of uh, natural resource conservation, and so on. So in this sense, uh, the, uh, greenific- the, the need to rapidly reforest the Korean peninsula and the infrastructure behind that broader project 
uh, goes on to shape and inform similar efforts back in the archipelago. And I thought that was um, quite neat to and somewhat surprising to think that uh, these efforts forged in the colonial context uh, would actually reach back to the archipelago um, and um, frame uh, some of the ways in which foresters back in Japan uh, set out to um, regenerate their own landscapes at home. Yeah, I thought this was you know interesting because I th- I think it it um, sort of speaks to something a, a slight di- it's it's both there there's some similarities and some differences with the sort of idea of the the colony as the sort of you know. Uh, the the laboratory right um, where you know you do the, also you know you do these experiments and the findings there are then brought back to the metropole. Um, it seemed to me that there was a you know a slight difference from the way that plays out in a lot of other places. Sure. Oh yeah. 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 Um, so let's uh, move on to uh, your last chapter, "A Stiff Wind Blows," uh, and this gets you to the colonial states' wartime, uh, the forest plunder. In other words, that 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 part of the narrative um, that is the sort of center of narratives about Japanese forest practices in Korea uh, at present, um, the denuding, the exploitation. Um, and you take a particular interest in, and, and as I, you've, you've talked about, uh, you know, uh, quite eloquently throughout the podcast, the sort of slow violence of the system. Can you tell us um, how that penetrated the daily and the material existence of ordinary Koreans? Yeah, so this chapter for me was um, an opportunity to really, I think, diverge from how forest history is often written, Um, which is to say that most treatments of wartime forestry, of forestry in general, are are focused on um, the the industry itself, the political economy behind forestry, and very seldom is it as connected, I think, as it should be to domestic life, to quotidian existence. And so this, in in this chapter, what I'm really trying to do is show how uh, this project, this program of centralizing the economy for wartime forestry reverberated into households in Korea, how it was inextricably linked to the rhythms and routines of everyday life as they were carried out within the private and often intimate spaces of the home. Um, And so for for obvious reasons, forestry is connected to this space. Uh, Everything from the um, preparation of a warm bath uh, to uh, uh, um, making a, a hot meal. All of these things require fuel. They require energy. And much of that energy uh, is um, uh, comes from the forests. Bi- biofuels and charcoal in particular uh, was absolutely essential to um, everyday life in Korea. And for urbanites and uh, um, rural communities, uh, both. Uh, so for me, this this chapter is is really my effort to show how this the the colonial forestry enterprise increasingly penetrated the domestic sphere under wartime conditions as it tried to uh, establish and really intensify programs of uh, resource austerity um, as the war wore on. 
Um, and the kind of hallmark campaign uh, that I that I uh, highlight in this story in this chapter uh, is the the rollout of the so-called uh, low temperature lo- lifestyle campaign from 1943 onwards. Uh, this was uh, an effort on behalf of forestry bureaucrats and their local partners to implore uh, h- households to um, uh, just live a calorically efficient lifestyle, to waste absolutely nothing, uh, and to see the forest and its bounty in every meal, in every fire that they lighted under the home, um, to make forest conservation, the to, to bake it into... Uh, the stuff of everyday life. Uh, and, that, and that's really the heart of this chapter. And why I think that's important <laughs> is because it allows us to broaden our understandings, our conceptualizations of the nature of colonial violence. Um, and and th- that's how I end up kind of framing this, this chapter. We tend, to, when we think of co- the, the violence of Japanese colonial rule in Korea, we tend to think of things uh, that are more sensational um, and, and more kind of conspicuously violent in the in the moment. Uh, the um, uh, comfort women system, for example, the mobilization of of laborers and uh, um, their their experiences back in Japan, for example. Uh, seldom do we pause to think about some of the more subtle and less sensational, less bombastic dimensions or expressions of colonial violence. And in this system of resource autarky, in this low temperature lifestyle campaign, I see an alternative form of violence, one that is kind of structurally rooted in everyday life. It's not, it's not one that's plainly obvious uh, to anyone studying this period, but the more you look at reminiscences, reflections, the more you can see that resource scarcity was a defining feature of the bodily experience of colonial rule. And this is no small issue come winter. For anyone that spent time in the Korean Peninsula, you know that the peninsula gets absolutely frigid, bone-chillingly cold. Uh, and uh, access to a, a sufficient um, uh Fuel supply is a matter of life and death, of, of survival, uh, especially in the northern parts of Korea. So, so for me, this was sort of a call, a provocation, if you will, for scholars of Japanese colonial rule in Korea and elsewhere to uh, think more broadly about how we might understand the relationship between the environment uh, and colonial power. And in this, I'm I'm simply echoing the brilliant insights of Rob Nixon, who's written a, a book under that very title, "Slow Violence," uh, that that really was uh, influential in shaping my my thinking and my approach in this chapter in particular. Um, in your conclusion, excuse me. Um, in your conclusion, you uh, talk about some of the long term uh, impact of the Japanese Empire of Forestry. Uh, you. You start with the occupation, uh, the Korean War period, um, and then the reforestation projects in South Korea under the Park regime uh, beginning in the 1960s. Um, 
what should we take away from these post-World uh, War II developments? Uh, what sort of ideological or institutional continuities and discontinuities are most uh, salient for understanding that long-term impact of Japanese forestry practices um, and also understanding sort of uh, what your uh, argument is here in your book? Uh, two things. The, the first is simply that greenificationism uh, did not die with the Japanese empire. Uh, Pak Chung-hee breathed new life into uh, this greenification framework that the colonial state had erected, succeeding in many of the ways that the colonial state had failed. Um, so th- there are all sorts of ties, that, uh, continuities that I map out in this, in this conclusion, uh, some of them institutional, the scientific forestry uh, stations, for example, carried on and, and uh, stood at, squarely at the center of the forest miracle under Pak, this breakneck uh, campaign of reforestation over the 60s and 70s. Um, some of the scientists that I mentioned earlier were also part of the brain trust at the heart of this project. Um, so the the while the administration changes, the overall aims of mitigating perennial floods, uh, providing f- fuels and, and uh, ushering in uh, fuel replacements, especially charcoal and coal, and boosting rice production, these all remain the same. Uh, and, and so these are some of the continuities in environmental governance uh, that, that I think sustain this greenification project across the full sweep of the 20th century. I don't say nearly as much as I would like to in this book about North Korea. Um, I don't say uh, this does not apply, this uh, greenification project, uh, nearly as much to the North as it does to the South, in part because of the um, challenges and the the limits of reforestation uh, uh, carried out by the regime there. the 1990s, the arduous uh, March period, uh, a time of marked by terrible floods and catastrophic famine, I think speak quite powerfully to the limits of reforestation uh, in North Korea. And this is all compounded by the fact that research uh, is just quite difficult. We don't have access to a lot of documents to uh, make sense of, of that history. The second larger point uh, in the in the conclusion, I think, is... Uh, that Japan and its empire of forestry continues to cast ecological shadows across Asia to this very day. Um, and, and to appreciate that, we need to turn to Southeast Asia, where Japanese corporations, often under the guise of uh, proxies on the ground, um, who you would never know have any association with Japan, uh, are uh, standing at the forefront of the clear-cutting of Southeast Asian forests in uh, Kalimantan, in Malaysia, Vietnam, Myanmar, uh, all of these places ha- are the sites of massive industrial forestry operations with ties to Japan. And so I think in, in order to understand the green archipelago as we appreciate it uh, today, uh, we also need to recognize uh, how much the verdancy of the landscape in Japan has been offloaded uh, or, or enabled by uh, the uh, extraction of resources abroad and those sorts of ties between uh, the archipelago and force across the Pacific Rim, um, the empire, uh, Japan's empire of, of forestry, 
remain uh, alive and well. Uh, and um, if we are to really understand those ties, we need to think transnationally. We need to write Japan's environmental history. We need to write a version of Japan's environmental history uh, that looks beyond the archipelago itself. Well, that sounds like uh, an interesting potential in, in, uh, uh, direction for future research, which uh, coincidentally, we're at about that point in the podcast where I ask you about that. Um, what are you up to these days? What's what's on your horizon? Uh, well, it, it, it's a, that that was a near perfect segue to, to my, my new book project, which is a history of the OG paper company. Uh, it is um, has historically been Japan's largest corporate consumer of uh, woodland resources across Asia. Uh, it was hugely influential before 1945. It, it operated 43 factories spread across uh, five different colonies. Uh, but it, it, it was the real mover and shaker of Karafuto. So part of this project is also writing a history of Karafuto, which remains... Um, uh, in many respects, kind of marginalized in our understanding of the Japanese empire. Uh, but also in the in the post-war period, uh, Oji reemerged and today operates uh, 50 different plants and factories across Asia, most of them in Southeast Asia. And, and so uh, at, at the most basic level, this is my will, will be my effort to um, better appreciate and understand the material underpin- underpinnings of Japan's long celebrated print culture. We, we often talk about uh, newspaper readership, the product packaging of department stores, the diapers, the plastics, the tissues produced by Nepia. What do all these things have in common? Oh, the OG paper company. Um, and, and so I, I'm, I'm really trying to kind of write an environmental history of uh, Japanese print culture through the lens of this one corporation and its transnational footprint. Well, that sounds fascinating, and I hope that uh, it will be uh, coming out sooner rather than later. Although I know that's a big, a big don't, ask since we're we are here on breath. the new books podcast. You just finished your last one, Do um, not but when it does come breath. out, yeah, I hope you'll you'll join us back here on the podcast. I would be thrilled. Well, uh, thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time, and I appreciate it. Uh, and uh, yeah, thanks for joining us. Thank you.